Hey there, I'm Brittany, and welcome to the Cape Cod Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at capecodchurch.com. In the meantime, we hope you enjoy this message in our current series. Well, good morning. Man, daylight savings time. Who knew an hour meant so much to us? Uh, We're awake now, though. Some of us feel like we should have just brought a cot to church this weekend. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, it has been it has been a great, great weekend. And in part, I've enjoyed it because I've gotten to hang out with my friend Rex. Um, almost 20 years ago, which is dating us, Rex, we, we met at a retreat for pastors that we've gone to every year. Uh, I think this is our 19th uh, year. I was doing the math earlier today. And uh, we have, over those seasons, gotten to know one another and done life together. And a couple weeks ago, I said something here, and uh, I said in one of the services I mentioned, another service I didn't. So this, some of you have heard this and some of you haven't, but uh, you'll remember I, I said it's better to be surrounded than to be smart. You just it, surround yourself with the right people is better than thinking, oh, I've got all the answers. And uh, one of the gifts in my life has just been to been surrounded by incredible people, whether it's in a small group or in a staff or my wife who got it all started. And but one of those things has been a group of pastor friends. And I've got three text groups on my phone. And Rex is in one of those text groups. And they're small groups. There's like three pastors, two, two of them and, and me. And man, what a rich, rich relationship. I mentioned something earlier to our leaders. You know how you, you, you sometimes meet people by reputation, right? You, you hear about them. Uh, in my world, you hear about their church. You hear about some of the things that God's doing through them. Maybe you hear them speak, and you're like, man, I... I'd like to get to know them. Have you ever, you ever had that happen? Like you met somebody be reputation and they were impressive and then you got to know them and the shine wore off. That's what you know what I'm talking about? The exact opposite of that has happened in my life with Rex. The more I've gotten to know him, the more I've appreciated him. In fact, years ago, we sent spies. Rex, you didn't know this. We sent spies into your church. We did. My wife's best friend in the world lived there, and we're like, you got to check out this church. And, they've, and you didn't know that, but they've just been spies for us telling us if you were the real deal or not. And they have just, they've grown in the Lord there and have just so appreciated that ministry. So I'm really, really grateful to have Rex with us because I know this about him. I know he's a man of God who loves the word of God and he's going to bring it to us today. So Rex, would you come? Cape Cod Church, would you help welcome him? <laughs> Can I give you a hug, bro? Oh, thank you. Thank you, Ben. I'll tell you something. I love that guy right there. And I know you do too. Amen. <laughs> Almost 20 years ago, we first met, and God has allowed us to forge a quality friendship that I, I know that I cherish uh, so much. Cape Cod Church, can I tell you something? 
God's hand is on this church. You know, I, I, it, it really is. Yeah, praise be to God. There's an anointing. I think there's a special grace of God on this church. And I tell you that because I'm looking from outside. You all, as insiders, you know, I sometimes wonder, do the fish in the aquarium understand how special this environment is? And uh, I know that I don't have that insight into the church where I serve. I, I, I need other voices. I'm telling you, God is in this place, and there is a sweet spirit in Cape Cod Church. I love what God is doing in you and through you. Thanks for allowing me to be here today. Ben, thanks for the invitation. And uh, I'm so thankful. Ben told me that since you only have one service today, that I could preach three hours. So, boy, I just love a friend like that. I love a friend like that who just opens it up. Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to start with three verses here. If you have a Bible of your own or read from whatever device you may use to read Scripture. Matthew 11, verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples... He went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, now this is the one we call John the baptizer, the one who prepared the way for Jesus. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to him, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Now, what do you make of the fact that the guy that Jesus called great, in fact, if you read on down to verse 11, he said, of all those born of women, there's never been one greater. What do you make of the fact that he apparently has some confusion and doubt? If you read the Bible scholars on this passage, most of them concur that John is going through a sort of dark night of the soul here, apparently, and wondering if Jesus is really the one. He's having a crisis of faith. Now, in our world today, we might call that deconstruction. Perhaps you've heard that word. It was first coined by a French philosopher named Jacques Derrida. He died in 2004. And Derrida used this phrase, deconstruction, in his writings. So it's now become a part of the mainstream of culture. But the problem is he never defined what he meant. And so there's a lot of confusion around it. One thing we do know is that Derrida believed there was no such thing, get this, as absolute truth. No such thing as what you might call big T truth. And so Jacques Derrida was very frustrated. In fact, he got quite angry at anyone who would dare make absolute truth claims for God. Now, Christian experiences of deconstruction, I want to tell you, are often very painful. Here's my working definition today as I want to go on this journey with you talking about deconstructing and reconstructing. Here's my definition. A critical questioning and dismantling of one's beliefs about what it means to be a Christian. And just as one can deconstruct or tear down a building, so we can deconstruct our belief systems. And I personally went through two deep 
deconstruction periods in my own life. They shook me to the core. One was as a 17-year-old student entering college, and the other one, the second one, was six years later when I was mostly through a, a divinity program working on an MDiv degree, and I had another experience that shook me deeply, and I, I want to talk a little bit about that today. Both of them felt like life and death. Both of them, I had the wind knocked out of me because your most cherished beliefs are hanging in the balance. So as we dive in together, I want to talk to you about four things you need to know about deconstruction. And I realize that some of you may have never heard of this. Others of you may have read books about it or done a lot of study. So we're all over the place maybe with our understanding. But wherever you are, I, I want to suggest that deconstruction often happens, number one, when we have difficulty reconciling our Christian beliefs with new information that we're getting, new truth claims. My college deconstruction period was like this. 17-year-old, right out of Sunday school, and I simply was not prepared for what I was being faced with in college. In fact, I'd been a Christian for four years, but I had never heard anyone seriously challenge the Bible. Don't get me wrong, I knew unbelievers. I had family members and friends who were skeptical and made snide remarks about Christianity, but I'd never heard anyone seriously challenge me about Christianity. And so finally, I'm in college and I'm being barraged with these truth claims that I had no answer for. I mean, things like, hey, how do you know that there's a creator God? How do we know that time plus matter plus chance didn't just do a little dance and we evolved to this with no God in the, in the process at all? Why do we need God? I had no answer. Or the Bible. I mean, come on, you gotta admit it's a pretty weird book. How do we know that God really authored this book? I mean, it's got so much violence in it. It's got all these weird stories. Can we truly believe this is God's word? I mean, don't we know better than they did? A third belief I really struggled with was the bodily resurrection of Jesus. I mean, I'd never seen anybody rise from the dead, have you? I'd seen a lot of people die, I'd seen animals die, people, but I'd never seen anyone rise from the dead, come alive again. Now today, I could give reasoned responses to those questions, but then I simply wasn't prepared for the hard questions that were coming my way. And in today's world, you don't need to go to college or university to get barraged, all you gotta do Make one click on your computer and you can find the most eloquent critics of the faith spending their version of why it's just not true. And so as followers of Jesus, we need to always ask ourselves, am I ready to give a reason for the hope that I have in Christ? We're going to be barraged with all kinds of truth claims. Do we have a response? But second, deconstruction often happens when we're disillusioned with professing Christians who are blatantly hypocritical. And most of the young people that I meet today who are deconstructing, and I know quite a few of them, 
Debbie and I have a number of friends and friends of our children who are in a deep de deconstruction period. Most of them aren't dealing with these big issues that I was dealing with. What they're struggling with is Christians behaving badly. Are you with me on that? They're looking around and going, whoa, 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 time out, time out, wait a minute. If it's not working for these leaders, how do I know it's not just a sham? Perhaps you listened to the rise and fall of Mars Hill. It was a podcast listened to by millions of people. And it exposed uh, the sort of systemic abuse of authority by Mark Driscoll and other leaders at Mars Hill. And wow, that created a wave of cynicism. And then there were the revelations about Bill Hybels and his predatory behavior. This supremely respected, profoundly gifted founder of Willow Creek Community Church was found to be living in blatant contradiction to some of the very values he prescribed for others. And then came the implosion of James McDonald of Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. And then, oh, the revelations about Ravi Zacharias, one of the most respected apologists of our generation. And then came the news about celebrity pastor Carl Lentz and his adulterous affair. And most recently, the three-part miniseries, Hillsong, a mega church exposed. I mean, I could go on and on and on. You could add to the list too. And my purpose today is not to comment on any of these sad situations, but simply to say, if our job in this world is like John Wesley said it is, to give people an accurate portrayal of who God really is, I wonder how we're doing. Now let's be clear, everybody's hypocritical. Can we just have a moment here? Everybody's Hypocritical. What I mean by that is no person on this planet lives in complete consistency with their stated beliefs. For instance, I say that I value physical health. I really do. I claim that to people. I want to be as healthy as I can be. But I can down a pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream in minutes and then be craving another one immediately. I am a stinking hypocrite. I say I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I, I really do. <laughs> and I'm praying more these days than I've ever prayed in my life. But you know what? I spend more hours binging Netflix than I do on my knees in prayer. I am a stinking hypocrite is who Rex Keener is. Well, you smile and go, most of us will have compassion with things like that. But hear me, dear friends, when leaders, especially Christian leaders, who have hammered ethical values, then blatantly and repeatedly violate those same values in their personal lives, I don't blame people for being cynical. Again, they look and go, if it's not working for the leaders, maybe this whole thing is just a sham, and so they begin to deconstruct. But I want to mention a third one that I'll bet some people are going through. We often deconstruct when we're disappointed with God. Have you ever been there? 
That's what my seminary experience was like. I'm in the middle of this degree I'm working on, and my main question at that time was, does God really care about me, me personally? And I began to have a pity party, and I began to compare my life and my situation with a guy I had gone to high school with in Lawrence County, Tennessee. I'll call him John. It's not his real name, but, but I'll just protect his identity a little bit since he's still alive. John and I were in the same grade in school. And going to high school, John and I were both kind of well-known in our high school. Uh, Both of us were athletes. He was the starting quarterback on the football team, and so that gave him this popularity, and he was well-known. And I was the starting point guard on the basketball team. But we were also known for other reasons. You see, I started preaching pretty early at the age of 15. And so, you know, In Lawrence County, Tennessee, you don't need to know anything to preach. All you got to have is a pulse, okay? Just a pulse will do. And so I got lots of invitations to preach as a teenager. And so I had a reputation in our little county there as being this sold-out follower of Jesus as a teenager. Well, John was respected as a party animal. I mean, he really was. When you thought party, you thought John. Where's John? He just kind of lived for the weekend to indulge in whatever debauchery or pleasure he had in mind. So here we were. But when John went away to college, woo, he was gloriously saved. The old had gone, the new had come, and he got involved in a local evangelical church in his college town and they were so excited about John's newfound faith in Christ they quickly made him the youth pastor of the church he was making $30,000 a year as a full-time college student and that's when $30,000 was actually a lot of money that was at that time 10 times more money than I had ever earned in a in a year I had a conversation with John. He told me every time I turn around, somebody's slipping a $100 bill in my hand, a 50 in my hand, just because they're so excited. They want me to be encouraged. Now, at this time, this is some years have gone by, and John's continued to be the youth pastor. And I'm now in seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. It's the summer of 1984. I'm lonely. There's virtually no one on campus. There are literally three of us staying on third floor Sampy dorm that summer. And I'm so sick of school and I'm sick of life. And to try to pay the bills, I'm delivering pizza for Mr. Gaddy's Pizza in Louisville. I have a 1972 brown Ford Maverick with no air conditioner and it is hot in Louisville. And so I'm just sweating in my car. And I'm literally living hand to mouth as a seminary student. Every time I'd get a couple hundred dollars in my bank account, my car would find out about it and tear up. I mean, it just, it was bad, okay? I'm literally, I'm gonna confess this to you, I'm literally eating the pizza that families left behind as I got back from a delivery and go out and bust tables, because if you didn't have another delivery right away, you were supposed to go out and bust the tables of people in the, in the restaurant part, and I would literally eat the pizza that they had left behind. And in my disappointment, I began to compare my situation to his, and I began to complain to God. God, where was John? 
When I was serving you back in high school, he mocked you back then. He made fun of my faith back then. And now his life looks far better than mine. God, is this the way you treat your friends? No wonder you don't seem to have too many of them these days. And just as I'm in my lowest despair, one of my sisters, my sister Connie, sent me a newspaper clipping. She wrote me a letter and she included a clipping from our local newspaper back in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee. It was a picture of the engagement picture of John and Miss Alabama. What? John is going to marry Miss Alabama? I want to marry Miss Alabama. That is more than I can take. And so in my despair, I tack that picture up on the bulletin board of our dorm hall, and I tag it up there, and I wrote a cynical comment, is there really any justice in this world? And that's the way I felt. You see, I was struggling with the question, does God really care about me? And I wasn't sure. I felt genuinely disappointed, and it thrust me into this season of just doubting, is God really active in my life? I'm not exaggerating. I was an inch away from chucking it all, of just quitting seminary, and my plan was to go to law school and become a big-time attorney and make millions of dollars. Disappointment with God was causing me to deconstruct my beliefs. Now, I think John the Baptist in our text today was dealing with a growing disappointment that God was not acting the way God should act, for goodness sake. Think about it. John's in prison. He's confined to this dungeon. He didn't deserve to be there. In fact, his only crime was that he had challenged the immorality and the sin of King Herod. Imagine what thoughts went through his mind. Lord, I thought you were supposed to come and set the captives free. Why aren't you setting me free right now? And let's be real. If you're listening to me right now and you're going through one of those tough seasons, maybe your marriage is going sideways and maybe you've got a child that is far from God or maybe your finances are kind of in a shambles and you've got all this financial pressure and wondering if you're gonna be able to pay the bills. Let's be honest. We really begin to wonder at times does God really care? Does God really care about this? The second thing I think we need to consider about deconstruction is that it happens with people at all places on the maturity spectrum. If you're sitting here today and you're thinking, well, pastor, surely mature, seasoned people of faith would never have a question about God, I think you need to deconstruct that thought. You really do. John the Baptist was a giant of spiritual maturity and commitment. In verse 11, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. I mean, when Jesus is giving you props like that, that is legit. 
He was a humble servant of God. And when Jesus' popularity began to grow, he stepped aside. He's the one who declared in John 1, 29, this is, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We're talking a guy here with true character. And believe me, seasons of doubt and deconstruction can happen to people all over the maturity spectrum. It can happen to people like Chuck Templeton, who was an associate of Billy Graham's, who everybody in the day believed was far more gifted than Billy Graham was. Everybody thought Chuck Templeton is gonna be the next great evangelist, but he deconstructed and became an agnostic. Joshua Harris of I Kiss Dating Goodbye, remember that book? Kevin Max, formerly of DC Talk, Bart Campolo, Anthony Campolo's son, Jim Dethmer, dynamic church planner, is now a Buddhist, Rob Bell, former evangelical megachurch pastor. I could add dozens to the list of women and men who have deconstructed their faith and come to diff different conclusions. And some of them, if you ask them, would say, oh, Jesus is still very special to me. But when you drill down, you realize that they are far removed from biblical, historical Christianity. Third, I would suggest to you today that some deconstruction needs to happen. Some needs to happen. In one of the final episodes of The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, Paul Tripp, one of the people interviewed, greatly respected leader, said, and I quote, <coughs> excuse me, we should all be deconstructing our faith. Let me say that again. We should all be deconstructing our faith. We better do it because our faith becomes a culture, a culture so webbed into the purity of truth that it's hard to separate the two. And we better do some deconstructing or we're gonna find ourselves again and again in these sad places. Now what's he talking about? He's talking about deconstructing some of the cultural influences that distort and redefine and deform the faith in harmful ways. So I quickly want to mention three that I think are common situations where hopefully people are willing to do some deconstructing. One would be extreme legalism. Extreme legalism. Some of us came to faith, and I certainly am in this category, came to faith where basically Christianity boiled down to you're not, you're not supposed to smoke, drink, or chew, or run with girls who do, Right? You can't dance, you can't play cards. As soon as you come to Christ, if you're a man, you get your hair cut, you get a buzz cut, and on and on the list goes. And there's this little sandbox of narrow beliefs that you can never branch out of. And certain proof texts are constantly barked at you to keep you in line with those beliefs. If that's you, it's time to deconstruct. No, not core beliefs, but those harmful distortions that are wrecking your appropriate freedom in Christ. 
A second area where I wish we'd have more deconstruction in our nation would be with the prosperity gospel. Now, thank God there are legitimate themes of prosperity and promises in the Bible. I love those. Hallelujah. I want to dance when I read them. There are all kinds of good things promised to God's people and to the righteous. But, but listen, listen. If you were taught when you came to Christ that God is your cosmic genie in a bottle who essentially exists, God exists to make you always healthy, always wealthy, and always happy. And if you're not, God has failed. If that's what you were taught, it's time to deconstruct that. I've had a front row seat to prosperity doctrine up close and personal, and let me tell you, it leaves behind a wake of dissolution people who think that God let them down when all the time they were just sold a distorted version of Christianity. So sometimes we need to deconstruct things that we've been taught. A third area where I wish there were more deconstruction is, is Christian nationalism. And I have close friends who would be strong Christian nationalists. Some Christians came to faith in Christ in a context where the kingdom of God and the United States were essentially the same. Taught that God loves the U.S. more than any other nation, and the kingdom of God essentially rises and falls on the fortunes of the USA. Now, please hear me clearly. As a person who loves my country, I truly do. I want to kiss the ground, literally, every time I fly back from another country and land back in the U.S., I just breathe a sigh, and I want to get down and kiss the ground for all the privileges that I have enjoyed personally as a citizen of this great nation. But I hope you're listening. If you get choked up more over the star-spangled banner than you do over the old rugged cross, you may have a problem. It's time to deconstruct. It is possible to be a patriot without making an idol of your nation. But I fear that America has become an idol for a lot of professing believers. I could go on and on with things we just don't have the time. Where there needs to be some deconstructing work goes on, going on. And every time you join your small group, every time you crack open your Bible, if it's good Bible study, there's deconstructing going on. We're going, oh, I hadn't understood that before. Oh, wow, that gives me a wonderful new perspective on this. I'm so glad for that new light that God has brought there through his word. But finally today, as I wrap up, I want to mention this, that deconstruction doesn't have to lead to deconversion. Some of the strongest Christians I know have gone through serious seasons of doubt and come out more committed than ever. In fact, I could tell you with genuineness today, I'm so glad that I went through those seasons of doubt because I think I've come out with a lot more empathy and a lot more compassion for people who are struggling with belief. I want the church where I serve, and I'll bet, I'll bet it's your heart for Cape Cod Church as well, and I believe this church is a place like this, where people could come with their honest doubts. Don't you want it to be a place like that? 
where you don't have to just believe everything and sign on the dotted line before you kind of get a sense of belonging here. I want grace to be a purpose, a place like that. And here's why. Because Jude 22 tells us, have mercy on some who are doubting. Have mercy on them. I'm telling you, it's a hard place to be when you're going through doubts. Let this be a place where people can come and say, yes, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. I'm so impressed that Jesus didn't shame John when John had doubts. Jesus didn't respond to me. You go back and tell that John, I'm so ashamed of him that he would ever have a question in his mind about who I am. No. In Matthew eleven four, 4, Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you see and hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Just let the evidence speak. Share the facts and let John be faced with the evidence and then he can make a decision for himself about who I am. To me, one of the most provocative verses in the Bible is the statement Jesus made in John 7. Here's what he said. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Isn't that a provocative verse? That suggests that the Christian life has a sort of self-authenticating quality about it. There's a sense in which, yeah, you kind of do belong before you believe. There's a sense in which you participate before you're ready to profess faith. My favorite statement from Mark Twain is this one. He who carries a cat by the tail learns something he can learn in no other way. I love that statement. <laughs> he who carries a cat by the tail learns something he can learn in no other way. Even if I could explain to you brilliantly what it's like to carry a cat by the tail, uh, it, it's not gonna be the same as what you'll learn by doing it. Christian faith is like that. You gotta plunge in. You gotta pick that cat up. So let me return in these closing moments to my story. Folks, I didn't think I'd make it out of my dark tunnel. I spent days, days in a fog. I spent so many nights not able to sleep, tossing and turning on my bed. And here's some of my thoughts. What is my dear Christian mother gonna think? This is gonna kill her when I have to go back home and declare I'm not a believer anymore. What is my pastor and my friends back home, what are they gonna think? I mean, they, they, they believe I'm called to be a preacher. What are they gonna think of me? And I was just miserable in my doubts, but I couldn't get rid of them. They were there, I couldn't just ignore them. But I made this decision. I'm not gonna totally chuck it all until I know I have something that's proven to be better. And I started searching. For the first time in my life, I read C.S. Lewis. 
I began to spend days in the library studying world religions. I began to read books on apologetics. I began to question professors about their beliefs and why they believed them. And as I plunged in and grabbed the cat by the tail, so to speak, and did my own searching, God graciously, graciously, over time, brought me from doubt to belief. While I was still in the tunnel of doubt, I wasn't trying to fake anyone out, I signed up for a mission trip. Can you believe that? I didn't even know if I believed the gospel was true or not. I wasn't trying to be deceitful, but I signed up for a mission trip to New Orleans. (coughs) Went with nine other college students, sophomore. And I witnessed in New Orleans to a faith that I wasn't even sure I believed. And I served the poor and the underserved people in that city. And brick by brick by brick, God began to rebuild my faith again. Here's my final word. I I don't know where you are today in your own life of faith. My guess is that the vast, vast majority of you are victorious followers of Jesus. You love him with all your heart, soul, and strength, and you're living for him faithfully every day. That's my belief. But I also believe there's probably a number listening right now where if you felt you could be honest about it, you'd have to say, you know what? I do believe, but, but, man, I've got some serious doubts about all this. My word to you, grab the cat by the tail. Jump in. Dive in. God can handle your doubts. God can handle your questions. God is merciful to those who doubt. And by God's grace, I believe he will bring you to believing that Jesus is who he said he was. May we pray together. Father, What an amazing weekend this has been at Cape Cod Church. You have used the churches on the Cape. You have used these amazing Christians all up and down the Cape to come together in unity, to pray, to worship, to learn together, to hear from one another, to share testimonies about what you're doing. And we praise you for that. Thank you for the vision you gave Pastor Ben and Tammy these years ago, seven or eight years ago, to start this kind of thing. Thank you for the partners on the Cape who've joined with this, for the powerful work that you're birthing out of it. I thank you for this local church. To me, it's one of the healthiest local churches I've ever seen. Praise be to God. But my heart breaks today for people who may be at that same place I was long ago, is this real? Can I really, can I really trust my life to this? <clears throat> and they can't make the doubts go away. Father, I pray that by your grace, you would draw them into an ever closer experience with you and that brick by brick by brick, you would build a robust life of faith, one that's rock solid, built on Jesus. This is our prayer, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 